Man, I miss my wing woman. Okay. Well, let's let's go ahead and get going then. Uh, I hear that uh, Jody did uh, passable job last time. Oh yeah. Isn't she good? Um, she she's funny and. Uh, even in in the office, I'll say. So you did okay? She says, "I think I did okay." Yeah, that's not what I. That's not what I'm hearing from you. So, okay. Now I want to. Uh, this will be my one contribution to the uh, political discourse, which ain't going to really be political. Okay, since we're kind of in the middle of that and we're watching everything that's going on. Um, I actually think it's kind of funny myself. Utah is a reliably red state. Most presidential candidates ignore Utah, no matter who's running, but this year because of uh, uh, Evan McMullen has thrown the state into a mix. The little-known candidate, who's not even on the ballot, is running neck-and-neck neck with Trump and Clinton. Well, Trump supporter Lou Dobbs kind of lost it on Twitter. I, think, I don't know if you guys heard this. Lou Dobbs on Twitter. Look deeper. He's nothing but a globalist, Romney, and Mormon mafia. <laughs> So in Inc. Magazine, the lady writing this article says, Will Rude calling McMullen a Mormon Mafia tool? And the Mormon Mafia responded. Look how they responded to a lesson. Uh, this one. Gosh darn it, you messed with the wrong fellows this time, you nincompoop. That's, that's, that's from that Mormon Mafia. Here's another one from the Mormon Mafia. Once a gang of Mormon Mafia hoodlums offer to mow someone's yard for free, how much longer will this terrorism be allowed? <laughs> and I like this one. Susan in Wyoming. Mormon Mafia will soon leave a dead fish on your porch. Sautéed in butter with baked potatoes on the side. And a cheesecake for dessert. <laughs> oh. That Mormon Mafia is a scary bunch. And then the, the lady writing the article says, This isn't the only time Mormons have responded to rudeness with grace and humor. When the offensive Broadway hit, the Book of Mormon came out. Instead of organizing protests, the church simply bought ad space in the playbill offering, offering playgoers a chance to learn more about the actual Book of Mormon. I think, in fact, the uh, note in the, in the playbill actually said, uh, read the book, it's better, I think. Now you've seen the play. Now you've seen the play, now read the book, yeah. Yeah, pretty well done. Uh, when I lived near the Mormon church history sites in Palmyra, an anti-Mormon protester took up a spot outside the Joseph Smith farm. What did the missionaries who worked in the visitor center do? They went outside to give the protester some lunch and let him know he was more than welcome to come inside to beat the heat, get a drink, and go to the bathroom. <laughs> Dang Mormon mafia. <laughs> And then the last one, uh, you're going to encounter rude people from time to time. You can scream and yell and threaten to sue, or you can respond like a Mormon with humor, kindness, and baked goods. <laughs> <laughs> Only one of these methods makes everybody better off. <laughs> Isn't that awesome? Yeah. Have you, have you already sent that to us? Yeah. Yeah, it should be on the, it should be on the PowerPoint that went out. Yeah. So, so our job is to respond like a Mormon to, to rudeness, which I think is just terrific. Um, I am a little scared. If you, if you come across the Mormon Mafia, please let me know. Uh, my, my f you know, I, I was actually picturing as I was driving over here, I was picturing that, uh, you know, the guys in bicycles with white shirts and black name tags, maybe they have got something different in their backpack that we don't know about. 
Like what? Yeah, they're biker gangs. They are. <laughs> Bicycle biker gangs. Yeah, they're really terrified. Yeah. But Ellen Lindsay in our world like yesterday told me a cute story about what happened to No, I haven't heard. You didn't hear that? Oh, 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 oh. Yes, that's right. That's right. We have an elder. But because we have the, we have the Chinese group in our ward, uh, centered in our ward, we have an elder that's been with us, uh, except for a couple of months, for his entire mission. Uh, he's Chinese. He speaks Chinese. He speaks it very well, Mandarin. And he talked about the fact that uh, they were uh, they were knocking on doors, I guess, in Richardson, and uh, they stood on the door. Was it a lady or was it a guy? It was, it was a guy. It was a guy, yeah, who saw him standing on the door, and he said, uh, he came out and he said, "Burn, burn." <laughs> and he said, "What?" And then he says he actually came out and put his his uh, fingers on on Elder Lindsay's forehead. Burn! <laughs> and his companion looked at him and goes, It's not working, is it? <laughs> uh, so, so our job is to try and respond like a, like a Mormon would uh, in all the foolishness that goes on here. Uh, Alright. Well, that said... Um, I want to kind of pick up, and again, this is what we are going through what I think is some of the mo most well-known parts of the Book of Mormon, and certainly for me, in my, in my past, in my writings and things, this has been one of my favorite parts. But I want to back up just a little bit before we get started, if I can. Uh, I want to start, let's go to uh, uh, Mosiah 28.2. Okay. Now, before I go there, I just want you to think about something for a second. When we talk about the sons of Mosiah, the sons of Mosiah going on, this, uh, on a mission, if I were to ask you why it is that they went on the mission, what would you tell me? Why did they go? Convert to convert the Lamanites. That's what they were going to do. They were going to go off and convert the Lamanites. Would you be... Yeah? I feel they're also doing restitution for their own... <sighs> A little bit, they feel that they did, yeah, and to a certain extent when they said that when they felt what they felt, they didn't want anybody else to feel what they were feeling. Yeah, President? I think you've indicated in the past that Benjamin and Mosiah King were the patriarchal leaders and the kings. Their sons were the next patriarchs. They were the princes, yeah. And they, the Nephites, they were already rescued. And so they, as patriarchal leaders of their family, went to rescue the rest of the family. Yeah, and listen what they're going to try and do here. You have to keep in mind, these are, these are Nephite princes. They, they are the sons of the king. And, as, and if they are righteous kings, who are they most concerned about? Their subjects, right? Now, if you're a Nephite king, what is the biggest threat to your people? The enemies, the Lamanites. So, the, would you be surprised if their primary focus, or at least a co-equal thing, was was uh, something different, maybe than what you've always thought about? Okay, yeah. That's more of a practical world peace. Ah, there we go. Okay, Mosiah twenty-eight two. 
so rather than offering the, being offered the throne, they turn it down, but they still have in their mind, how do we protect and take care of our people, our, our subjects, our, the people that we are responsible for? Listen to what, in their, in their youthful idealism, here's what they had in mind. That perhaps they might bring them to a knowledge of the Lord their God, there's one, convince them of the iniquity of their fathers, and... Almost as important as this conversion process is something much more practical if you are a king. And that is that perhaps they may cure them of their hatred towards the Nephites, that they might also be brought to rejoice in the Lord their God, that they might become friendly to one another and there should be no more contentions in all the land which the Lord their God had given them. What were they after? Peace. Peace. And as Alma is going to explain in his mission to, the, to Ammonihah, he had found that the preaching of the word was more powerful than the sword. So the way to bring peace to our land and not have to be fighting the Lamanites is to do what? Convert them. Or at the very least, you're going to have to convert them and convince them of, of the wrongness of their traditions. That's how it's going to work. So we're really trying to bring peace. Now, we know the story. How well did that work? For the four sons? No. Yeah. Did, were, they able to, were they able to bring peace to the land so there were no more wars? No. 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 Um, were they able to get converts? Yes. But unfortunately, actually, in some ways, the conversion of the, of the converts and the bringing them out of, of uh, Nephi and camping them in the land of the Nephites actually brought on the major war uh, that is going to fill the rest of the book of Alma. In some ways, as far as, well, as far as the peace goes, the enemies of evil will always push back against the possibility of peace. Satan wants war. Now, but I love these, this useful idealism. You can imagine them in front of their dad going, we're going to bring peace. <laughs> we're going to go off to the Lamanites and we're going we're to convert them so they'll quit fighting us anymore and choirs will, bring out, will break out and peace will reign. Really, dad, uh, I know they're ISIS and I know they're bad and, and, and Al-Qaeda, yeah, they're kind of, but we're going to go convert them. <laughs> we can do it. We have a higher purpose here. Okay. Um, now, we know, we know it's not going to work on the one side. Does the Lord know that? Yes. Sure. So listen to what he says to King Messiah. If we go down here, verse 7. And the Lord said unto Messiah, let them go. For many shall believe in their words... And those that are going to do that are going to have eternal life. And I will deliver thy sons out of the hands of the Lamanites. What's he telling Messiah? They're going to be all right. They're going to be all right. And I will still have to deliver them because peace isn't about to break out here. So they're going to go with all the best intents of purpose. And the, and the mission ends up being successful, but not for the reason that they think. Have we ever had those kind of experiences in our life or even in church history? For instance, can you think of a time in church history when Joseph Smith did something for the best of intent 
and it kind of blew up on him a little bit, but what turned out was different than he thought, but better. Zion's camp. Zion's camp was one. Yes, I hadn't even thought of Zion's camp. I was actually thinking of another, but you're right. Zion's camp, we're going to go off to redeem Zion, and if we can't get 500, we'll get 300, we get, then, two, then 200. We're going to go out and we're going to redeem Zion. We're going to give them back their land because they've been driven across the river from Jackson County, and we're going to do it, and they get all the way out there, and what happens? <coughs> I'll go home. No, it's not going to work. In fact, I'm having to save you, bring in the storm, wash them out, drown the leader. Bummer. But, as a result of that, the real purpose was recovered, which was what? To grow profits. To grow profits. To train leaders. Okay? How about this one? we got to pay for the Kirtland Temple. Dang it, we're really in debt to the guys in New York. And the guy shows up going... There's gold in Salem, Massachusetts, in the buried in a house. And if you can rent the house, you can dig it up in the basement and get the gold. And Joseph Smith says, let's grab the first presidency and go. <laughs> we can pay off the temple and, and not have to worry about the guys in New York. And off they go. How's that work? <laughs> blows up in their it kind of blows up in their face. No gold. They have a hard time running the house. They hang around there. They get to see some stuff. Is it successful? No. As far as obtaining gold, was it successful? The Lord says, I have other treasures in this town, notwithstanding your follies. <laughs> that was a folly. I told you I would pay you. I would fight your battles. I told you I would pay the debts. You weren't listening to me. But notwithstanding that, I will turn... But your zealousness to try and pay off the temple is not evil. It's not wrong. But I'll show you the real treasure, and it's the people. And, and, and what they did is they actually laid the groundwork for missionary work to come in Salem. Okay? How many times in our own life do we say, even in our parenting, in our classes, in our callings, do we set off with the best of intentions and it doesn't necessarily turn, well, turn out well? Yeah, regularly. And then the Lord consecrates our efforts and says, I will take your energy and I will turn it into something that is more along the lines of what I had in mind. So sometimes we look at our initial thing and we go, well, that didn't turn out well. You go to teach a class and the kids are all over the place and it's just not working, but, but they remember how you intervened or they remember how you handled it. Okay? This is one of those this is one of those times. Their goal was noble. It didn't work, but the real goal was received, which was convert those that are there that it's about. Any, any more comments? Does that, does that make sense? Okay. Alright. So that said. So off they go, and Mosiah is knowing they're gonna have to be rescued. Um, but you guys go, go get them. Have a good time. See you, boys. <laughs> and off they go. All right, now. So now, now let's do this. Um, I, want, I want to, uh, as we look at this section now, I want, to, I want to start at the end. This is one of those times. Did, did anybody, back in the day, did you see the Titanic movie? Did you know it was going to sink? 
Back in the day, did you see the Apollo 13 movie? Did you know it was going to blow up? Okay. Sometimes we know the end. <laughs> but, the, but the story that what gets us there is kind of worth the ride to find out. Okay. So I'm going to start off with the end of the story, and then I'm going to work backwards, even though not, you already knew the end anyway. Okay. Um, now, so uh, Alma 23... I believe this is this is a masterful masterful metaphor on the part of Mormon he's looking at all these he's read the story then he's summing up the story and he's gonna put it very poetically and he puts in our mind a wonderful image that I think is so universal uh, and so helpful um, he's gonna say ultimately we know did peace break out no. In fact, there was actually more death as a result of the conversions. But there were great conversions, and they, that they were convinced that they were all brethren, that they ought not to murder, or plunder, or steal, or adultery, or commit any manner of wickedness, is what he's going to teach them. By the way, whose law is this? Anybody remember? These are, the, these are the five rules, and they come from where? These are King Benjamin's rules. These are King Benjamin's rules that are going to be that were taught to Mosiah, and then uh, and Alma brought them in, okay? Or uh, Alma in, helped enforce them. The, this was really the, the law of the land. Very simple, very short constitution, <laughs> like one paragraph. Don't do these things. Does this not follow the Ten Commandments? Well, it, it, it sort of does, but what you had with Ping, King Benjamin is that he kind of codified them. As your king, we're going to have the law, but here, if you want to know what we're going to civilly do with one another, here's the rules. Uh, you don't murder, you don't plunder, you don't steal, you don't adultery, you don't commit any manner of wickedness. But there they are. There's the rules. That's why I say, short constitution. And interesting, when Ammon and the boys are going to teach the Lamanites, they're going to say, well, what rules do we live by? Here's the five. We call them the Benjamin Constitution. <coughs> and by the way, how are the Lamanites doing on these things? <laughs> Not so good on the plundering, murdering, and manner of wickedness and all that stuff. Okay? So they're going to teach them, here's, what, here's, the, here's the laws you live by. Oh, okay. Now, if we're going to do that then, so he sends forth the proclamation, live by the rules, and Mormon says, thousands were brought to a knowledge of the Lord, yea, thousands were come to believe in what? Traditions. The traditions of the Nephites. We're going to talk about that a lot more in just a second. I need you to see why that was so critical to enforcing Benjamin's constitution. Yeah. I was noticing above that it's kind of like the telestial version. So it was focusing on on moral principles, but not focusing necessarily on God. It was trying to meet them down where they were a little bit more, maybe. Perfect. And because in fact, remember what King Benjamin's purpose was. Remember, King Benjamin's speech was a pre-baptismal preparation. It was a, let's get these guys ready for baptism. Alma's going to come in in just a couple of years and bring the ability to baptize, but I'm going to get them ready for baptism. And part of it is, 
Guys, you know, and, and by the way, the other nice thing about this was everybody in, in uh, Zarahemla members. No, they weren't. There are an awful lot that weren't members. However, if you're a non-member, can you live by these? Wonderful constitution. Don't murder, don't lie, don't plunder, don't steal, don't commit adultery, don't do any manner of wickedness. And it doesn't matter what church you belong to. Oh, we can live by that. And so, and, and by the way, so when King, uh, when Lamoni's father puts out this proclamation to everybody, is he living in a pluralistic society? Because we're still going to have people of the Church of Christ, and then there's going to be the Am Amulekites, the Amalekites, there are going to be those that are kind of wild. There are actually going to be those that we believe were... were uh, um, not even any of those things that they were Lamanites that lived on, on the peninsula there okay they're all part of that can they all live by those rules yeah he's putting out this is a that's why I say this is more of a civil constitution live by these rules oh okay but in order to do that they're going to have to change some traditions Thousands were brought to the traditions of the Nephites. They were taught the records and prophecies that were handed down to the present time. Then he's going to say, And as the Lord liveth, so sure as many believe, they are brought to a knowledge of the truth, of the preaching, the working of miracles. We'll talk about that in a sec. And then, and then this key phrase, which, remember who's writing this. Mormon. What's Mormon watching when he, t when he takes a break from his writing and his abridging of the records, and Mormon goes outside the cave, and he looks out, what does he see? Ah, oh, just falling apart, and they're just murdering each other, and just constant blood, and it's just horrible, and everything. And so then, then he's going to go back in, and he's going to read about the anti-Nephi-Lehi's, and then you can almost just see him writing with emotion when he goes... <sighs> and as many as the Lamanites as believed in their preaching and were converted into the, unto the Lord never did fall away. Oh, that I had known these guys. Another time I'll talk about the fact that I think he did. I think he knew, I think they had continued as a group and that I think he did know them very well and he knew their traditions, yeah. You indicated Benjamin's speech was pre-baptism. Yeah. This looks like pre-baptism. I couldn't find anywhere in the Book of Mormon that any of these Lamanites were baptized. Yeah, that's right. And you almost wonder if they're not if they're baptized when they show up in uh, Jershon. That, that and, and then they're going to join them. Although, it's almost suggested because now they're going to build synagogues and churches and he says to do that. Now, whether they were just doing the law of Moses or whether they were being baptized, good question. I'm, I'm trying to figure out the same way that it teaches baptism in First Nephi, but we have no record of it. We, yeah, he didn't include that. I was surprised that when we talked through all this Lamanite conversion, I never read the word baptism <laughs> once throughout the entire history. Isn't that amazing? Yeah. Whether that's because, you know, Ammon didn't see that as his role, and that was going to be more of a church role, hard to know. And they talk about synagogues and temples, but not churches. So, it's, this is one of those things. Aren't you looking forward to the millennium? We get to have firesides on this stuff. We get to finally fill in all of the details. Okay? All right. So, this is... Can you think of any other group in all the Book of Mormon that once they're converted, they never do fall away? Is there any other group? Nephites? 
Oh, they're good for three years, and then they fall apart. <laughs> Lamanites? Nah. This group, in the way that they taught, and the way that they believed, and the way that they lived, never did fall away. Now, one of the things we're going to find in the subsequent chapters, how did they never fall away? They had to leave town. We don't believe they were involved at all in the, uh, in the wars between Lamanites and Nephites. They had to completely separate themselves and go far into the land northward. Um, it, is, it is fun, and by the way, I, I will say just, so where's my speculation bench? Oh, speculation bench. <laughs> Both Hugh Nibley and Spencer W. Kimball both believe that the remnants of the anti-Nephi-Lehi's are the Zunis and the Hopis uh, at, at uh, uh, Mesa Verde and, and those people up there. Uh, Spencer Kimball and uh, Hugh Nibley because of the writings they had and the way that they lived so they wouldn't have to fight wars. Okay? Yeah, the Hopi Indians. Okay? Got it? Alright. Off the speculation. Alright, here we go. Alright, now. Uh, they never did fall away. They became a righteous people. And then, Mormon's going to then give us a metaphor uh, that applied to them and it also applies to us as to how and why they never did fall away. And if we want to be aware of how, how do I live my life so I don't completely fall away, here's the key. They became a righteous people, verse 7. They did lay down the weapons of, of war, the we, the, their, their fighting weapons. No, he says they laid down their weapons of what? Rebellion. Rebellion. That's incredible. Because we know that, you know, so that they wouldn't fight, they, they took all their swords and their clubs and stuff like that that had been stained, because wooden swords would be stained with blood, that's how it works. And they're going to throw them, they're going to bury them so they can't get to them really quickly. They're going to lay down their weapons of war, but Mormon makes this subtle change, and he said, in order for them to not ever fall away, they had to lay down their weapons of rebellion. Whoa. Okay, now I want to spend the time today using this phrase, the weapons of rebellion, because it, it perfectly identifies what they did. That it wasn't just about fighting weapons of war. There were a number of weapons of rebellion that had to be buried for them to never fall away. And it had nothing to do with swords. It had nothing to do with swords. They were laying down their swords, but more importantly, they had to lay down their weapons of rebellion. Now, that wouldn't apply to us, would it? <laughs> we don't have a certain level of rebellion in us. Yeah? Um, with the um, Moses' time, you see the difference when they didn't lay down their... their they didn't... They didn't become completely humble and converted. They were still entrenched in what yeah. they called their lives and they didn't let it go behind. They kept going back to it. Yeah, she was saying if you take the children of Israel coming out of Egypt, uh, they're sort of, physically they're coming out, but they're still hanging on to their, and, and in fact, let's hold on to that one because that is the first place I want to go. Because I want to I mention, I could mention a lot. I could 
and I have done it at, at Ed Week and other places. Um, I want to mention at least three weapons of rebellion that they had to lay down that I think apply to us and they're also in these chapters. Okay, So let me take um, weapon number one. Number one weapon I think that they had to lay down was their, was their sword of tradition. Their sword of tradition. Um, so let's go to 23.5. Oops. Oh, kind of, I've done, oh, I've already been working on that, haven't we? Okay. Um, What traditions would they have to would they have to lay down? When when he goes back and he's going to say, thousands were brought to the traditions of the Nephites. Now, what traditions would they be living under? Yeah. I, I was thinking about this earlier. Whenever I read this section, I'm always just super impressed with these people that you have that one little sentence to believe in the traditions of the Nephites. That was, that was a huge deal. That wasn't just, you know, learning how to live those five rules, physical things, not supposed to do this, not supposed to do that. That was like a complete paradigm shift. And oh, massive, massive identity. shift. It's personal identity. Right. Who we are and what we do and why. And why we do what we do. Throw that away and... and I would think for some that would be really hard. Well, so that one little sentence, I thought, wow, that says a whole bunch. If if we if we take, let's give it. Let's give you an idea. Um, uh, let's see. I don't think it's in. Yeah. Right. Okay, so, so let me give you an example. Let's hop over here to Alma 20. Okay? Oh, thank you. Let's hop over here to Alma 20. Remember, let's go back in our story. Again, we know these. Remember that uh, Ammon is going to convert the, the Lamoni, the king. Uh, they're going to now, uh, things go well. Then he says, what do you want to do next? Well, the Lord has told me that my brother Aaron is in, uh, is in prison in Madoni. Oh, really? I know, the, I know the king there. Let's go. They hop in the wagon. Off they go. Um, th there is a possibility, by the way, just uh, as our understanding of... Um, the, the, this area, he may not, we picture them kind of riding in a chariot with horses. Uh, that may not necessarily have been the case because uh, we know that uh, the, the tradition in, in this part of Mesoamerica was often if the king is going to go from one town to another, where does it, how do they get him there? They carry him. You're going to have the guys. He's going to sit on here. Off they go. They're going to haul him out there. And uh, uh, the horses that they're referring to may not have been horses in the traditional sense that you're thinking they are. It's a discussion for another time. Anyway, so off they go. Okay, and who do they run into? Here's Daddy. Here's what you were at the party. How come you weren't at the party? Well, I've been hanging out with these guys. And by the way, verse ten. You missed the feast. 
Dang it. I tried to text you and you wouldn't pick up. <laughs> also, he said, Whither art thou going with this Nephite? Now listen to the traditions of the Father. Who is what? The child of a liar. Part of the tradition is that Nephites were the children of a liar. Who was the liar they're talking about? Nephi. Wait, wait, hold on here. What year is this? Look, look at the top of the chapter. What year, what year are we talking about? Ninety BC. What year did they come from Jerusalem? Six hundred BC. How long has this lie been going on? Oh my. Okay. In in a sense, who was the liar? Laman and Lemuel. And what was their lie? They were cheated. They were cheated and robbed. They were cheated of their birthright. So the lie. Isn't it interesting that this is like pro-life and pro-choice. You change it around so that one is not the other. Okay. And so the Nephites are the son of a liar, but the Lamanites were really the son of a liar. How many thousands have died because of one lie? Wow. But that's the tradition. The tradition was we were wronged and they are always trying to steal from us. And where you're going is with the son of a liar. All Nephites are liars because they descend from that lie. Yeah. Yes. Absolutely. She says that it, it, what happens when you are the when you are the son of you were lied to, all Lamanites were lied to. So if we are the if, if the Nephites are the liars, then we are all victims. And doesn't that justify then going in and plundering and trying to take back even a little bit what was stolen from us? Yeah, we really shouldn't be plundering, but hey, they robbed us years ago. So, so it, it's a justification. Of course we were victims. we got to do this. That is the tradition. So by the way, if that's the tradition, and then in this land, they're hanging out as Lamanites, uh, and along comes Zenith and the boys. Hey, we just, we just want to come back to the land of Nephi and, and get back the, the land of what? Our first inheritance. So we're just going to show up in town because we want to take back the land of our inheritance. And the, and the king at that time, with Zenith, and then King Noah, and then Limhi, is going to say, Sure, why don't you come into town? Why don't you set up nice cities and towns, be industrious, and then we're going to plunder you. Why? Well, it's only fair. <laughs> you think... You lied to us, and part of what you lied about, this is the land of your inheritance, your first inheritance. Whose land is it really? <coughs> it's ours. Really, as Lamanites, this is the land of our first inheritance that your father stole from us, so it's okay if we plunder you. Now, I have to think that with Zenith and the guys, that went over about as well as when the uh, the saints uh, 
under Joseph Smith start moving from Kirtland to Missouri. And they show up in Independence, Missouri, and what are the saints saying when they, when they show up? This is our promised land. Sorry you guys got here first, but the Lord has promised this is our new Jerusalem area, and sorry, you're going to have to leave. This is really our land. Really? Oh, yeah. Any other Mormons coming? Oh, they're going to come by the thousands. Because this is really our land. This is our inheritance. How do you know that? God gave it to us. He told a prophet. Really? Yeah. Well, at least you'll come shop in our stores. No, we're going to have our own stores. Well, at least you come gamble with it. No, we don't gamble. And we shop in our own stores. And we just build our, our land. And by the way, we buy up lots of land. Why? So we can sell it to our, the, the more Mormons that are coming to the land. It's our inheritance. And we can't believe why they're upset. This lady had a nice comment You know what? Let me take it one step farther. Um, Israel is a little upset right now at the UN. Anybody know why Israel's upset? Hope, hope that's not mine. Oh. Whose phone is that? Make sure you turn off your phones. <laughs> no. Why is Israel? Anybody know why Israel is upset at the UN right now? Why? And and how are they doing that? They are. In fact, they're writing the documents that everywhere, this is UNICEF that's doing this, and UNICEF everywhere in the Bible and their documents where it says uh, a dispute over the Temple Mount, they're now drawing a line through it and say dispute over uh, the Al-Aqsa Mosque. So in other words, they're trying to remove all references to the Temple Mount so that it's all the Al-Aqsa Mosque. And Israel goes, no, it's been the Temple Mount for, you know, thousands of years. No, it was always the Alaska Mosque. And we refuse to use the name Temple Mount. Benjamin Netanyahu is going ballistic over this. Because they're saying, this is our land. And the Palestinians are going, no, this is our land. You're the liar. You're, you're the thieves. You're, you stole it from us. Well, there was that you know, war in 67. <laughs> and before that, there was, well, no, sorry. You won't find any evidence on that mount of any kind of temple. Well, yeah, there are. There, there's, there's Solomon's temple and stuff. Yeah, that's not there. They're, they're, they're actually hauling it out at night. They're, they, they have been excavating and trying to remove all evidences of this. Okay, there's some real similarities here. Okay? But we get downfield. <laughs> okay. So for, for, for the Lamanites then, this was all based on tradition. So now do you see why it is when we go back here to uh, 23, it's important. How could the Lamanites begin to accept the gospel at all because the, without having to change the traditions that they had always believed in. They had to come, come to a correct understanding. Of the, uh... There had to be a shift. Yeah. Okay? Now, 
Are there any shifts going on today? Are there any shifts going on in the church where we have to correct some traditions and the things that we have believed about certain things and we're having to change our paradigm, we're having to change our thinking going forward and some of us are going to hang on to our sort of tradition and go, this ain't right. Like what? Yes. The, the, the new church's website, which is... The, the church website on, on, on homosexuality used to be, uh, I think, uh, gays and Mormons. In other words, let's have a discussion about gays and Mormons. The website changed in the last week to simply say, gay and Mormon. I can be gay and Mormon. Feel the shift? In other words, uh, in other words, you can have same-sex attraction. You can identify as gay. You can be out front with the fact that you're gay. And if you're living a sexually pure life, can you get a temple recommend? Can you get a church calling? Yes and yes. You can. If you are living a moral life, even though you identify as gay, you can have church callings, temple recommends, and we want you here. How big a shift is that? Ooh. In the in the 80s, I remember people being excommunicated for that. That is a massive change. And we're having to lay down any sorts of tradition that we had along that line. I, I, I remember that in uh, in uh, 78 when when the uh, the uh, revelation came out on uh, on the priesthood in my uh, grandfather's ward in Salt Lake, you know, they, they read the letter. Here's the, this has been revelation received by President Kimball, and, and now the priesthood will be extended to all worthy members of the church across the land. All in favor? Aye. All, in, uh, all opposed? One guy in my, in my grandparents' ward? No, this is wrong! This is a Bruce R. McConkie! <laughs> cannot lay down those and I, and sometimes I think when we're going to get these kind of about uh, gays and stuff like that we're going to have some of us are going to like well we're still based in the old traditions and we have to lay that sort of tradition down otherwise we're rebelling against revelation okay that's a shift give me time how tough is that And then something simple like soft drinks that shall not be named. <laughs> the, the, the Dieter Cokes? The Dieter Cokes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's one, yeah. I was going to say, um, when people feel truly sorry for whatever sin it is, yeah. they may not be excommunicated, as I understand. But sometimes the remorse isn't there. And maybe later it comes. Mm -hmm. And I think the brethren or revelation is coming to help people soften their hearts to what needs to happen. Yeah. Yeah. I think we're going the church is going through tremendous change at the moment. I think uh, are you ready to have in, in gospel doctrine somebody who is going to remain active in the church but doesn't believe there were actually gold plates? Somebody that doesn't necessarily believe that Joseph Smith saw uh, God the Father 
Jesus Christ in the grove. Now the question, that's the balance, isn't it? Are they going to promote it? Are they going to teach it? Are they going to teach it in your Sunday school class? Are they going to... That would be a problem. But up to this point, we've been a pretty monolithic church in terms of what we believe in. But we're trying to not lose these people that are going through the battles with our history. And we don't want to lose them. So we want them here. But we're also going to have to balance how we do it and keeping them close... But we're not, we haven't figured out exactly how we do that yet. But that is a sort of tradition. Traditionally, we have always believed monolithically the exact same way. But we're going to have to come to grips with how we do this. This whole idea of the swords of our tradition that could be rebellion are going to be tough. And how we do it. But are we to change or are they to change? Well, we hope that they will change, obviously. But Yeah. Then people start questioning whether things are a revelation. Yes. Or whether things are done for society's sake. That's right. Right. So even even if our doctrine our doctrine won't change. Our doctrine is what it is, and we have to hold on to those principles. But are we going to be able to hold on to the people that are going through this struggle about trying to understand something and not run them off? That, that's, going to change, that's going to be a shift in the way that traditionally we have handled stuff like that. Okay? Yeah? When you say our doctrine won't change, wasn't the blacks and the priesthood doctrine? <laughs> Where do you find doctrine? The, the massive shift that happened when what we thought was doctrine turned out to be policy was a tough one. We thought it was doctrine, then it turned out it was policy. And that has opened the door to everything else. That, well, what about women in the priesthood? What about this and what about that? We thought it was doctrine. I mean, the, 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 there's a tradition here that we're struggling with in the church right now. We have people coming and going based on as they're wrestling with these very thorny issues. This is an interesting time to be a member of the church. And one of the reasons why it is we have to know our doctrines well. But... Brothers and sisters, we also have to be ready that when the first presidency begins to make an adjustment on something, when they take a look at it and say, we thought this was doctrine, um, and it turns out that it was more policy that we don't suddenly all fall out of the church and go, oh my gosh. The sort of the tradition is, the tradition is that prophets receive revelation and that we're able to accept those, those changes as they come. President? We do have a very significant help. Uh, we, we put the doctrinal beliefs of the church and the doctrine of the church into scriptures. Yeah. And the problem we've had with some of these, what we call policies, is they were never inscribed in the scriptures that the church has ever accepted. Yeah. So you won't find anything specifically about blacks not holding the priesthood. In fact, in Joseph Smith day, they did. They did, and sure. So the challenge for the church was there was never any, there was never any scriptural indication. It was never, it's not in the Doctrine and Covenants. It's not in any policy, I mean, in any doctrinal. And that's why we call the scriptures the standard works. So one of the fun things to do is when the church is discussing policies, you can usually go to the scriptures and, and when we have modern revelation that the church believes needs to be embedded in the scriptures and they include it or they write an official policy declaration 
inside of it. Yeah. So you, you can know that that is revelation from the Lord and yeah. accepted scripturally for the church. That's a higher standard. It is a higher standard. Yeah. To cause them to ask? To cause them to ask, they go there. So a lot of times what we believe is doctrine, is society traditions that we are following at that time. I mean, you go and you look at any Baptist church in, you know, 1950, and they were the same way. You know, yeah. They just didn't have the priesthood as a title, you know. But right. It was very much the same thing, and I think sometimes, I think that's a lot of the same case right now with uh, what's going on with gays and with the church. And 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 in order to do that, we're going to have to let go of some traditions and things that we have traditionally believed. Okay, so that that's why I think this becomes an important issue. Yeah. Yeah. Um, 25 and 27 says, Pharaoh, being of the lineage which he could not have the rights of a priesthood. Yeah. There was a president for and that, And that's oftentimes where they went. Okay. Um, so here's, here's the new, uh, coming out of the new uh, Mormon uh, website here, Mormon and Gay. Uh, and I'm not going to take too long, but you ought to go take a look at this thing. Uh, uh, Mormon and gay LDS.org makes it clear that Mormons can experience same-sex attraction or identify as gay, lesbian, bisexual and still be active. Temple recommending holders. Uh, the site reiterates the church's teaching that attraction is not identity. The site includes an increase in content including personal stories those who identify as Mormon and gay. Um, traditional shift and we have to let it go. Okay, yeah. Yeah, go ahead. Okay, I really, uh, I, I'm really, I'm really grateful for this teaching because um, I think it reminds us uh, how important to be obedient. And I remember the lesson you had a couple weeks ago about uh, the the prophets. They will grow yeah. in their calling too, and. Uh, it reminds me, testify to me again, this is the church led by Heavenly Father himself. And then uh, I also want to uh, share another thought, because I joined the church outside the United States. So uh, I want to share two stories. It's one, it's kind of tradition we're talking about, but it's in the other way. Uh, when, I, when I was in Taiwan, we had, uh, I had a friend, uh, who actually be friend with me without her friendship I, I wouldn't survive in the beginning of the, the my membership in the church but unfortunately she left the church because um, 
we had a dance, a single adult dance activity right. uh, in a state center in Taipei. And then there was a, a please don't misunderstand this story, it's not accusing anybody, but I just want to share from sure. a different point of view. There is a, a, a American sister who lived in Taiwan because her husband's work. So we call them expats. Right, they're expats, sure. And so we're, we're organizing this single adult dance. And my friend, uh, her name is Lily, and she was the one responsible for the, all the music. Unfortunately, she picked up all the music. Uh, all of them are not the traditional single adult dance music uh, we usually use here in the right. United States. Right. So uh, it's not like hokey pokey those types of things. <laughs> you know, like, like, it's more like uh, uh, some pop music popular in Asia. Sure, sure. So my, <coughs> my friend Vivi, uh, she actually she went to the uh, the priesthood leaders to get approval on the list of this music, which were all fine. However, there is this this American sister. She came up, came forward to accuse her, say those music are not the Mormon music. Ah, yeah. So this got my friend very offended, and uh, we as uh, Taiwanese, we really don't. I, I remember. Did, did, let me put this way. Uh, I, I, I want to share this today because I want you guys to know a lot of members outside the United States really see the members in the United States as the pillar of light. Before I came to U.S., I always think people living in Utah must be very, very righteous. <laughs> yeah, yeah, those Utah Mormons are, yeah. Uh, it is not in a bad way. It is just, you know. Sure. You, you join the church and you know the church headquarters is in, in, in Salt Lake City and all the general authorities are all live there. So it's really a holy place in our mind, plus the, 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 the cultural difference. So this is the second story I want to share with you is the, 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 the music. So as, as we were there, we, we have no knowledge, no, no any foundation to debate or to communicate with this American sister because we have no idea what she's talking about. And we have to shut our mouths because we feel maybe we don't know anything better because she's from... She's from, yeah, yeah she's from America. She would know. Sure. So, uh, I, I, I want to share this story. It's maybe kind of linked to... Uh, Brother Hinckley, you're teaching about tradition. This is another angle to uh, for you guys to, to ponder. Uh, the other sister talking about sometimes we do things in a church. Sometimes we can uh, ponder if it's a practice or is it really doctrine. Just like that sister, I know she didn't mean to it, but because that was her practice, the way she lived her life here. But, uh, and we were in Taiwan, we have no, uh, we don't know anything better. So that caused my friend to left the church. And uh, as a, I remember that situation is none of us can really speak of anything because we really don't know what, what Mormon music means. <laughs> yeah, what is Mormon music? Sure. We, we have done our best to pick the 
the, the, sure. the modest music based on what what is available in that area. So. No, I th well, thank you for that. I, I think part of what we're struggling too, I think, that as the church has become interna international in, in scope, you're talking about, for those of you who couldn't hear, uh, that she had a, she had a friend in, in Taiwan that uh, had, joined the, had joined the church and tried to put together a single music for a single adult dance and was picking music and we had a, a uh, expat... Uh, uh, a, a lady from the United States who really kind of got on her, so this isn't Mormon music. You know, you're drawing on local music, and and we can get caught in these traditions, especially again as we're as we're kind of moving forward in, internationally, and we're running into a lot of different uh, traditions. Okay, boy, we gotta we gotta roll here, guys. Um, all right, let me do another one. Here's another, here's another sword. We have swords of tradition. Another one that doesn't really apply to us, but let's pretend like maybe it does sometimes. <laughs> the sword of pride. Okay. Uh, let's look at Alma 21. All right. Boy, I have to... I think this is, this is great. Um, let me just put it this way. Um, we have to remember... There's a way to kind of back into this. Uh, when, when the boys show up in town, where does Ammon go? Off to the land of Ishmael. That's where he runs into Lamoni. Where does Aaron go? And, and, well, Aaron, Aaron does an interesting thing. He's going to land uh, in the city of uh, Jerusalem. Uh, but primarily, it, it came to pass that Aaron came to the city of Jerusalem and first began to preach to the, to the Amalekites. And he began to preach to them in their synagogues, for they had built synagogues after the order of the Nahors. Oh, stop. Let's, let's stop for just a sec. What do we know about Nahors? Unbelievers. They are unbelievers. Well, they are believers. That they, would, would a Nahor tell you that they believe in God? Absolutely. What law do they follow? The law of Moses. Strictly. Now, if, if, a, if the Nahors, and, and what else do the Nahors believe in? Th think Nahor, think uh, um, Korahor. They're saved, by the law. They're saved by the law, not by Christ. That's right. So we don't believe in a tradition of a God coming in because if we just live the law, we're going to be saved. So they are Deuteronomists in that sense that they're going to hang on strictly to the law. Okay. What else do they believe in in their kind of their personal lives? What about their leaders? Judges, lawyers that all help instruct them. If the lawyers can justify their actions. Oh, absolutely. So we're going to get legalistic definition of what is, is. We're going to get into that so we can live the law. Okay. And why do we want to do all of that? If I'm a leader of the Nahors, what do I believe in personally for me? It's time to get rich. It's about being rich. I should be rich. You should support me with your money. Because if I'm living the law of Moses and I'm the one that, I'm the lawyer that I'm helping you kind of skirt the law, then you should pay me for my services and I should get really rich. 
What does that say about the poor? They're really, they're really poor and they're not as smart as me. Yeah, poor them. But if you don't have the money to pay for me, then that's just the way you've managed your life. I'm sorry. You're on your own. Okay? Okay, so, based on this, what would a, how, this is going to sound like an essay question. How would a Nahor synagogue look different from a anti-Nephi-Lehi synagogue? Oh, man. Would a church in Ames, Iowa be a little different from a church in Beverly Hills, California? If you're a Nahor synagogue, what do you look like? Holy cow. And you're going to see some of that when we start talking about the people in Ammonihah and they had the Ramiampton and the poor can't get in and we're going to build it with the finest materials. We're going to look fabulous. And we're going to be rich. And if you're poor and you can't keep the upkeep and maybe make the annual dues to be in the synagogue, you're out. Sorry. So I picture, I picture Aaron here. <laughs> Aaron's going to go, okay. He began to preach in their synagogues for they had built synagogues after the order of the Nahors. And there are many of the Nahors. Now, I picture this a little bit. You have to just kind of take a little creative license on this. I was picturing this. Anybody been to uh, St. Peter's Basilica in Vatican City? Okay. What does that look like? And it's very ornate. Oh my gosh, yes. <laughs> you know, paintings on the ceilings and gold everywhere. Paintings by, you know, Raphael and Michelangelo. And I mean, this is like gold. Every, I mean, this is like holy cow time, okay? And, and, the, and the basilica is like the largest... And there, there's the Piatta. Yeah, I mean, oh, wow, what a place. Can you imagine if when, uh, when Cindy and I were there last October, if I had like gotten up in St. Peter's Basilica and I said, uh, Catholics need to repent. <laughs> you guys are so wrong. <laughs> Your traditions are all messed up. And I have the truth. And you guys are uh, wrong. And your fathers were liars. How well is that going over? <laughs> They're going to grab you. Oh, yeah. They, they might even put me in prison for inciting riots. So, Aaron, bless his heart. Do you think there's any accident here that Mormon, in putting these chapters together... Remember, Mormon's abridging. And that means choosing what stories and choosing what chapters to emphasize and what to say about each one of them. So the first of all we're going to get in Alma, 7, Alma 17, we're going to get the story of Ammon. And Ammon's going to walk into Ishmael and he's going to say to the king, Repent? No. What does Ammon say? I want to be your servant. I want to hang out here for a while. I want to live with you guys. Really? And by the way, here's my sword. I am the crown prince. We can talk about this about traditions in a sec. Wow, you want my daughter? <laughs> let's, let's marry these guys together. Wow, the crown prince is here. Okay, and we want to be servants. Yeah. 
I've always loved a little saying that said, why don't you marry one of my lovely wicked daughters? Yes, yeah, you will love this. And not only that, then we will be friends because that's what kings do. We do this thing. And he says, no, I just want to be your servants. Where's the stable? <laughs> Let me go out with the, sh with the sheep herder guys. Wow, that's cool. So we have that story of Ammon, and then we get Aaron. And what's Aaron doing? In the, in the synagogue of the Nahors. Oh, you guys are way wrong. <laughs> oh, man, your traditions are messed up. So is it, is it a really big shock that the Nahors on their side are going to respond with going in five? Wait. You're saying that an angel visited you? Angels don't visit us. Behold, are not this people as good as thy people? Are you saying you're better than us? Wait. Thou sayest, verse 6, except we shall repent, we shall perish. How, know, how do you know this? How do you know how wicked we are? Can you see in our heart? How do you know our intent? By the way, we know our intent. How do we know that? We strictly keep the law of Moses. We got proof. Our names are on the walls here of the synagogue. We paid for this wing. How do you know our intents? How do you know that thou are not a, that we're not a righteous people? We built sanctuaries. We assemble ourselves to worship God. And by the way, we believe that God will save all people. What do you believe? Do you believe that God won't save some people? Hate speech? Liars? You discriminate? We believe God will save everybody. You believe He will only save the people that believe your way? That's pretty narrow-minded of you. That's hate speech. We should throw you out. Because we are more fair. We're more... Uh, we don't discriminate like you do. We are more open-minded. We're more fair-minded. Am I getting close to a common day yet? Because you, you are going to say only, only you guys go to heaven. We say everybody goes to heaven. We win. They just can't come in our synagogue because they didn't pay the, pay the dues. <laughs> and we... Okay, so... Aaron is like walking right into a bear trap. President Martin, would you say this is the best way to do missionary work? It's a challenging way. <laughs> we always circle the top and we come out one day and take out the boots. And then we knew that things were very different. But right now it's a day of invitation. It is. And, and this kind of invitation, bless Aaron's heart for all of his well intent. This was probably not the most effective way to do missionary work. Brings it to the head really quick. Oh, it does. But you may miss all this. Because, by the way, I, I will say, if we go down here, where does he, where do, where does he actually get cast into, into prison? It's in um, Madonai. Verse 12, they're going to go through all of this and they're going to get, uh, they're departed, they came into Madonai, few believed, then they were cast into prison uh, and, and they're going to say elsewhere in the scriptures that Aaron ended up in a tougher place of town, people weren't listening very well, 
at the end of the day, guess what we know about Madonai? I'm going to hop over here real quick to 23, when Mormon's going to go through and he's going to list, oh, these are the people that joined the church, and you have to name them. And we're going to, uh, we may take some, uh, we'll get to it. Um, gosh, there's so much here. Um, they did lay down their weapons of the rebellion. Now, verse 8, these are those that were converted to the Lord. And when people join the church, get their names. They are recorded so we know who they are. And then we're going to talk about the new name that they get in just a sec. Okay? But here, who's converted to the Lord? Ishmael. Verse 10, and also the people of the Lamanites who were in the land of? Madonai. Whoa, these are the guys that threw Aaron in. Wow. When it's done right, <laughs> but under the right opportunity, even the people that appear to be most wicked will be susceptible to joining the church because they're zealous in the tradition that they believe. Would you change the tradition? Think about, think about the Apostle Paul. How zealous was the Apostle Paul? When he, how, how zealous was Saul? Very. Very. <laughs> According to the tradition that he believed. Then you changed his tradition. The Lord himself helped change Saul's. And then gives him what? A new name. And now he believes a new tradition. And then what happens? It becomes very righteous. That's the people of Madonai. They believed a tradition. They were zealous. Throw him in jail. He's not supposed to be here. He's preaching against the law. He's preaching against the Nahors. Changed the tradition. And they went... Oh, well then, we're all joining. <laughs> Put our city down as one of those that join. Yeah. I was going to say, Aaron didn't have an Amulek yet. So after Ammon had got through with the king of the Lamanites, he yeah. had an Amulek go back to Madonai, and they all, but what we know about the gospel is, it doesn't matter what we say, if it's more than church, we see And that's even true for true. missionaries who baptize people. If the wards are not prepared to receive the people that missionaries taught, we lose them also. So it's all about our ability to receive. And, and, and these days, if we're... Come on, and this is just our tradition, right? If, if we're sitting in our sacrament meeting and the missionaries bring in a guy with a gangbanger t-shirt and, and tats and he's going to walk in, what are we going to do? Well, I don't think he's really Mormon material. <laughs> I'm not sure. He's really wired down. Oh, I don't know about that guy. And yet, if those, uh, or or like my uh, friend, uh, my my son brought it, one of his friends who was Catholic uh, to a sacrament meeting in this building, and his uh, and his friend comes walking down the aisle, and he got to about right here, and then he knelt down and genuflected and, and did the sign of the cross. It's like it's just his tradition of this is how you handle the sanctuary when you approach it. Yeah. Um, a profound experience in our ward in the last couple of years is a young man who was homeless who was invited and treated wonderfully, didn't matter about his hats, didn't matter about his rings, didn't matter about great big earrings. Um, in that time, he's been accepted and without, uh, without thinking he might join the church, just loving him anyway, yeah. he has not only since joined the church, um, I believe he's been he's married. I think he's sealed in the temple at this point. Wow. Wow. 
And bought a house in our neighborhood. And bought a house in the neighborhood. All right. He's no longer homeless. Yeah. Uh, my husband was a slow learner. He was, uh, 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 I guess, taking lessons and stuff for only 31 years of our marriage. And, uh, and he was Catholic. And he also went from Kentucky, so he spoke in sacrament like three times before he was even baptized. But uh, Wow, really? He, you know, he believed, but he still liked his other lifestyle. So. But many times when he would come uh, to church with me in whether it was gospel doctrine or what, members of the church would say, make comments about Catholics and about their beliefs and about their born of hell. You know, and it, it the great and abominable church and all that good yes. stuff. And yeah. Because we claim to be accepting and loving, and we don't want people to judge us and make comments about us, but unfortunately we do the same. Yeah. Now, in order to do that, then, we have to lay down our sort of pride. And that, that sort of pride is that we may be better because we're saints, because we, have, because we have more truth, then that makes us more, you know, we just get caught up in this stuff. And, and interesting that Mormon is going to call this, then, a sort of rebellion. What are we rebelling against? Are we not rebelling against God? Rebelling against His changes. And rebelling against changes. When we rebel against the changes, we're rebelling against Him. Yeah. With epic happening just in our own families. We all raise traditions in our families that you don't really realize they're there until you get married and you start. How do you do things that way? That doesn't make sense to me. That's, that's weird. Where, 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 where planet are you from? That's right. Yeah, I know. We get, cu we get caught in these kind of things. This is the way our ward has always done this, by the way. If somebody else comes in, we always have this thing. We do this thing on this Sunday and stuff like that. Yeah. There's a really great article on the homepage of LBS.org right now entitled, Latter-day Saints Can't Do It All. And it talks about how we're not God's only people. And it, it's a caution to us as members of the church not to feel like they're just because... The concept of we're God's one and only true church can lead us to be prideful and to have some of these various new things. But the point that this author makes is that there is goodness in all things. And we need to be careful. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, and one of our traditions, if you go back over the, the decades, uh, because of all of the... Um, I think it really had its roots back in... Uh, the early 1900s with the, uh, with the Smoot trials and things where they were trying to throw out the duly elected senator from Utah. And so then they bring, they, they pull him before a Senate committee and they, they fly in, or fly in, drive in. Uh, they bring in Joseph F. Smith and they grill him for days. And he's really vilified. They're really developed in that early 19th century, uh, the, uh, an all or nothing mentality, us against the rest of the world. And it's us Mormons against everybody else. Everybody else is wrong, and we're the only ones that are right because we're we're kind of martyrs. We're victims. We talk about yeah. Yeah. So the last quote from this article is by Orson F. Whitney. Oh, he's living during that time. There we go. Where he says God is using more than one people for the accomplishment of His great and marvelous works. The latter-day things cannot do it all. It is too vast, too arduous for any one people. Ah. Okay. Yeah. Did I say as a convert in the 1970s? 
That's, that's responding the way Mormons should respond, right? We're all together here. Okay, let me do this. Since we've got, we've got about six minutes, uh, let me do this. Uh, there is a third, there, there are three swords that I wanted to talk about today. I think I'm going to start uh, next week with uh, sword number three, um, which is actually the sword of sin. And and part of that is going to go. It's going to go back to the uh, the uh, statement by the father of Lamoni, who's going to say, "I would give away all my sins to know thee." Know thee. That that it's about that in giving. So we're going to have a discussion about this, and I, I'm going to invite you to kind of do a little research this week to talk about how knowing brings salvation. It's not doing, it's knowing. And that we give away our sins so that we can know him. And that knowledge is what, is what brings uh, exaltation ultimately because it motivates everything else that we take care of and all that. But it's about knowing. Okay, I'll give away my sins to know thee. And what happens when we don't know him? Okay, so we're going to start with that one next week. But I want to finish with this in talking about uh, the anti-Nephi-Lehi's. I'm going back to Alma 23 that because we started talking about this this is why I thought I would finish with this uh, now as these people are joining the church in mass in certain cities and I will probably show I was looking at a couple of possible maps for uh, the, how to lay out the, the geography of this and we really kind of think that these cities uh, there were seven of them Ishmael, Madonai, Nephi, uh, Shilom, Shemlon, which is actually the city of King, uh, King Noah. So it's got a tower in it that he and Gideon fought on. That's in Shemlon. Okay? They have this... They have this anyway, we'll get to that. Um, Shemlon, uh, Lemuel, and Shemlon. Okay? These are the seven cities that all join the church almost exclusively. Everybody in town all joins together. Okay? Uh, now they are far away. They are, they are away from the, uh, the Nahors are more on one side of town. They're more on the uh, east side. These guys are more on the west side uh, of the land of Nephi. They're over there. Uh, and they, they kind of join together in mass. Now, 
they do something very interesting and I just need you to keep keep thinking in mind that there is a there is a I think it's a, a natural law I think it's a an eternal law that says that when you take fallen people and you covenant and you, they make covenants to return to the Lord they are redeemed from the fall that that with all the blessings like of Abraham Isaac and Jacob thing there are there are blessings that come there are endowments that they are given one is that they are given an endowment of land they get they inherit land the meek inherit the earth kind of thing okay what else happens to people who change and are covenant how do you know that they changed they get a new name they get a new name that's part of the covenanting process our names change Abram to Abraham for instance, Saul to Paul. We get into the temple. It's about changing covenant names. And so it makes sense that for a group of people changing their... Um, the, being accepted and accepting the Lord, it also meant that in this case they also had to change their identity in terms of their tradition. If they're going to change tradition, it makes sense if they're going to take on a covenant new name, they would, be going, they would want to change their name away from what? We don't want to be Lamanites. That's like people in Germany going, yes, I'm a Hitlerite. <laughs> I don't really believe in what Hitler did, but yes, I'm a Hitlerite. Well, that doesn't sound really good. You know, if we're going to accept the gospel and we're going to change the tradition, we no longer want to be a Lamanite when we realize that Laman was the perpetrator of the lie. So we've got to change to something else. Oh, so what do we change it to? Well, the, by the way, they're also in the tradition. Remember, King Benjamin says, when he, he says to, to uh, Mosiah, Bring the people together. I want to give them a blessing and I want to give them a new name. Because the covenant process involves a new name. Oh, so if we got these cities, we've now identified them. They're in the record. We recorded them in the in uh, Mormon's Book of Life. Here they are. Here's the, here's the righteous people. And we're going to give them a new name. Um, and by the way, we're also going to point out the Amalekites and their wonderful golden synagogues weren't joining anything. <laughs> um, so, 16. Now it came to pass that the king and those that were converted were desirous that they might have a name. We need to change our identity. We need to change who we are. That they might be distinguished from their brethren. They consult. Uh, they take on a name that they might be distinguished. And it came to pass that they called their names the Anti-Nephi-Lehi's. Or uh, as Hugh Nibley has pointed out, the, uh, the, the, it, is the Nephi, it is the similar to the Nephi-Lehi's. Just like. It, it, anti in this case doesn't mean opposite. It means just like. Like them. We're not complete Nephites because we do have we, we do have this blood lineage, but we're not Lamanites in the tradition. We are like the Nephi Lehi's, so they're going to choose that name. Now, but it also means an identity. Yeah. Um, I've also heard it said it's more like a mirror image. Yes, it is. It's a similarity. It's a, we're going to believe what they believe. We do what they do. We now believe in their traditions. 
uh, we're like them. But we can never claim that we're Nephites because we're, that isn't our blood lineage. So we'll be like them. Now, let me just finish with this then. I think that part of this is we're laying down swords of rebellion. Part of someone who has laid down a sword of rebellion takes on a new identity. So sometimes, um, like we're talking about in Taiwan, when we're talking about the fact that we're, we're, uh, we're going to take on a new identity. And what does a, what does a Mormon look like? What does a Mormon listen to? What does a Mormon believe? How does a Mormon dress? How, you know, when you see converse, well, we have to do it the Mormon way. What does the Mormon way look like? And, and, and you see their willingness to say, I want to accept this new identity. I'm now a Mormon. What does that mean? What do I do on weekends? <laughs> What do I do for fun? Because I have a new identity. So uh, I'm, always, I'm always a little worried when I have youth that I, I talk to in my office that don't identify themselves as Mormon. Well, the, the Mormons in my, in, in my school are doing this. And I think, oh, you're, it's an us versus them. You haven't identified. Those that do identify as members seem to be able to... to uh, make it through. So I guess, so let me just finish with this. How do you identify? How do you identify yourself? Do you identify yourself as Christian? Do you identify yourself as Mormon? Do you identify as a Latter-day Saint? If you're having to struggle repent, uh, uh, forgiving yourself of things that you have done in your past, do you have a tendency to identify differently than everybody else in church? They're the righteous ones and I'm the wicked one. They're the married ones and I'm the single one. They're the good ones, the capable ones, and I'm the one that isn't so capable. They're the ones that, are, that have great lives. They're the blessed ones and I'm the afflicted one. How do you identify? What kind of identity do you put on yourself that, that defines you, the narrative about your life, and what you do, and how you handle it, and where you go, and how you handle things, and what you feel like you deserve? Because so often those that identify falsely, how can you go before God and get answers to prayers when you're the wicked one? The guys that I work with have been struggling with pornography, for instance, for years and years. Everybody else in my quorum is the righteous ones, and I'm the wicked one. So I'm not entitled to answers the way that they're entitled to answers. It's our identity. So I'm asking this rhetorically. I want you to think about it during this week. How do I identify myself? How do I see myself in comparison to the other Latter-day Saints around me? Because then I want to go from there, and then we're going to start next week, and then we'll hop into a lot more, obviously. But I want to talk about the sword of sin, and what it means to, if I give away my sins, and in this case, if I give away my identity, to know Him, how will that change who I am and what I do? Does that sort of make sense? Or I'm all over the map. I bear you my testimony that this part of the Book of Mormon is so incredibly rich and so incredibly applicable to what's going on with us today because we all have swords of our rebellion and there's many more swords. I'm just picking three that have all the impact of changing who we are and what we do and how we relate and how we see ourselves in our relationship to God. And I leave that with you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. President Jones, can we call on you for a closing prayer?
Thank you. Our Father in heaven, we give thanks for the opportunity of attending and uh, 